This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Next month, my next guest will be returning home. She is um, she is very well known to everybody around here, but she'll be returning home to run some soccer camps around Christmas time in this city. She is Melissa Tancredi. She is a member of Canada's national women's team. She is two times bronze medalist in the Olympics. She played in the World Cup. She got her 100th cap right here at Tim Hortons Field in Hamilton. She joins me now. Melissa, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm, well, I'm doing well, and I'm, uh, I'm uh, glad you're finally going to be able to make it home for the first time. What, since the World Cup, probably? You're very close to it, since before the World Cup. First time? Well, since the Olympics, yeah. It's uh, you know you get you get you become a professional famous athlete all around the world and there's just no time to get home anymore. <laughs> oh, we're still talking about me. Oh. <laughs> I guess, I guess, but it could be other reasons, right? I only have limited time with the family. <laughs> well, exactly. Now you are you are calling. We're we're speaking to you from your new place. You're you're settling in Vancouver, where you're going to get a chiropractic practice going and all that kind of stuff. It's um, And I understand, by the way, you've just moved into a new place and it's all perfectly designed and cleaned and everything is already packed away and the boxes are gone and all the rest? Uh, yeah, I could use some help. So if anybody wants to volunteer their time, I'm ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, there is, uh, there has been talk back in the summer, you were talking to an online publication and there was talk that, you know what, once the Olympics are done and once your club season was done that, you know what, Melissa Tancredi was, there'd been a lot of soccer played and now she was ready to be looking at a future beyond soccer. Is, is that the case? Oof, yeah, it's, um, I'm, it's still up in the air for sure. I think, um, right now it's the time for me to just settle down and, and figure out what I want to do with my future. Actually, I know what I want to do with my future, but just make some some really solid decisions, uh, like with my practice, chiropractic practice, and you know where I want to go forward with soccer. But nothing's been set in stone. I'm still playing. I still have a game to play February 4th. So uh, that's what kind of has been on my my mind for the past probably two months. Many athletes, when you listen to them after they've retired, they talk about the process and they say, you know what, the decision about whether to hang them up or whether to keep going was torture. I mean, I just, it was ongoing and you just couldn't think of anything else and it went back and forth and back and forth. Is that what it's like for you? I mean, making the decision right now, is it really torture to figure out what the future holds? I wouldn't say torture, no. I think it's going to be sad, obviously, letting go of soccer at that level, um, and never seeing that again. But I think for me, like I'm finally at the point where I'm so happy and proud of what I've done in my career. And I'm just really excited for taking on this next journey. Um, you know, I have, I have a, a, not a backup plan. It's my next career actually. And I'm ready to jump into that. I'm ready to kind of set some new goals, set my, my new identity as Melissa Tancredi, you know, Dr. Melissa Tancredi. So I'm excited about that. So I wouldn't say it's torture. It's just going to be an um, absolute emotional time for me to kind of let go of something that's been my identity for the past 20 years. Well, and beyond your identity even, Melissa, you know, athletes have had an outlet for their competitive um, urges, whatever you want to call it, when they play. When you weren't playing, because you took a couple of years off as you were finishing school before the World Cup, what did you do? Did it, did you go nuts not having that high level of competition? Or if you step away, if, when you retire, whenever that day is, is it going to drive you bonkers? Well, I think with the two years that I took away for, for school, it's kind of funny because my competitive nature came out in my grades. Like I was, <laughs> I was trying to <laughs> beat everyone in, in the next exam and, you know, get the top grade in, in every single exam. And, you know, I finished as a valedictorian, so that kind of shows you how much, uh, you know, the competition, is, it just doesn't go away in your life. And I think, 
you know, it'll find a new place in my new life. And I want to be the best chiropractor I can be. I want to offer more than that. I want to affect women in leadership roles. Um, you know, I have a lot of goals that I've set for myself and I just can't wait to kind of take on the new challenges that my next journey is going to bring. Well, when that decision comes, how much does it help that for you, again, the Olympics were not just really good because you guys won a bronze medal again, which is remarkable, but personally, um, you know, it was it was a pretty remarkable Olympics for you, especially that game against Germany that I have to think was among the best games you've played. How much does it help that if, if you decide to walk away, you can say, you know what, I, there's not much else I could do beyond what I've already done. I, I, I kind of did it all. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always great to go out on, on a good note. And I think, you know, I've played some great soccer this past year. I've had the best uh, league season statistically I've ever had in my whole career um, in Sweden this year. Um, finished with a bronze medal, had a great game against Germany, you know, made some history with Team Canada, and now even more history with, you know, we're fourth in the world. Uh, so this would be a great time to step down. I, I feel like last year to this year, of course, I think it was for me personally, I had a lot to prove to myself. Um, what do you mean by that? I did it. What do you mean by that? I just, it just took me a while. I was out for two and a half years of schooling, and, you know, no one realizes how hard it is to get back to international shape. It's almost impossible to do that within nine months. And, you know, that's kind of what I was faced with. And the World Cup kind of just standing at the end of that. Um, and not a successful World Cup at that. You know, it was, you know, one of my biggest disappointments in my soccer career. Um, but just knowing that I couldn't end that way and I didn't feel comfortable. I wasn't, I wasn't myself. I wasn't 100%. I wasn't 100% mentally or physically. And I knew I had a lot more to give. Uh, so the Olympic year was very important for me to come out and just be able to showcase, you know, the real Melissa, you know, the Melissa I've been working on. Um, a different Melissa, for sure, not not the 2012 Melissa, but someone that can still dominate, that can still produce on the field, and, you know, more of a leadership role, more of somebody, a teammate that my teammates can look up, look up to on the pitch, off the pitch. Um, so I've grown so much as a player, and I just feel very comfortable with, what I've achieved so far and, and how I, if I were to end my career tomorrow, for example, I would feel so proud and, and just, I don't know, there's nothing negative I can think of. It's just been a great journey and what a great ending. With how you describe though, the World Cup, with it being disappointing and frustrating and, you know, not being maybe at your absolute best, could you, if, if that had been the finish right now, if the Olympics hadn't happened, could you walk away if it had been the end of the World Cup without trying to come up with that resolution? You know, I think it would have been a, a longer process. Uh, you know, it's hard to walk away. I think, you know, it's unfortunate because some players had to walk away after that World Cup, and, and it's been a very hard process for them, um, you know, taking them a longer longer time to be okay with it. Um, but for me, I just knew that if I was able to still do it and if I was able to compete, I had to give it a shot. But it took a lot of work as well. I had to really nail down, you know, who I was, my identity, like really go back to, you know, the drawing board and kind of break down everything to build it back up um, mentally. So I think, yeah, it would have been a challenge. Obviously, there's a lot of positives out of that World Cup. We hosted a World Cup. That's the first time Canada's ever hosted a Women's World Cup. And not only a World Cup, but one of the most successful World, World Cup pieces ever hosted, you know, in women's history. So, you know, that would be the main positive uh, that I would take away from that World Cup. But for me personally, I had so much more to give. So that's why, you know, Rio, Rio it was. Well, based on your answer, it strikes me that you, even though you're trying to get started really going into the chiropractic and get established and it's another four years until the Olympics, that you would not consider 
taking another two years off soccer and then coming back two years out and trying to make it back onto the team. It doesn't sound like you would ever try doing that one again. No, no, that was that was a one-time thing, and I don't think I'd ever do it again. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise anyone. You know, the game's changed so much now, and you know, you miss you miss a week of training, and you're already far behind the next person. So, um, yeah, I would never, never look into that for sure. When you talk about how you feel good about things now, Melissa, one of the things I have to believe when you're talking about your career that that you feel good about is not just the the medals you won because you did and i mean two bronze medals i'm trying to think of who else has you know there's not many people that have won medals in consecutive olympics in any sport quite frankly let alone uh, in the same sport or in consecutive years but what y- you are part of something i think that you would probably acknowledge is pretty special as far as what you've done with girls soccer in this country that you guys have really changed how women's soccer is perceived but how you've affected young girls playing the sport Oh, yeah, I feel like you know soccer has a new face, and and it's the women's face to be honest. You know, absolutely, Canada it is. Yeah, it's for sure female dominant, and you know we couldn't be more proud of that. And that's exactly what we set foot to do. Like, you know, we look back at 2011 when we had you know a real a real meeting with each other, and we're like, what do we want to do for this this country? And you know, it took us five years to actually like make sure that we are a mainstay in the world stage. And it was all about consistency. It's all about wins. It's all about, you know, performing on the main stage, on, you know, an Olympics, World Cup. And it's getting people's attention. And that's exactly what we did. And now we have little girls who have female role models and who can play in leagues that are competitive and who have good coaches and a good, you know, technical blueprint to kind of get them into the national team. And that's exactly what we wanted for Canada soccer. And we hope that this continues for another 20, 25, maybe 30 years, you know, when... When I take over as head coach, no, <laughs> I would never. Um, but no, it's great. It's great to see, and, and we're going in the right direction. And you know, we're fourth in the world. Hopefully, we stay there. If not, get to number one in the next five years uh, under John. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Because of what you've done, because of the success of the team, honestly, do you, when you go around Canada, not necessarily in a soccer context, just out and about doing whatever you're doing, do you ever get recognized? I do. And it's crazy. I was just talking to a, a teammate of mine who just doesn't understand it. They're from a different country. And um, it's crazy to them to, to hear. They're like, wow, you guys are really popular in Canada. And I'm like, yeah, that's it's, <laughs> it's so weird for me to come home and get recognized. Um, it's more or less when I have my hair up. But, you know, when I go incognito and my hair is down and curly, no one really recognizes me <laughs> as much. But, uh, no, it's, it's good to see. And you know, Thinky is a household name across Canada, if not across North America. And I would even say abroad, like this is, this is major for us. And uh, mm. it's, good, it's good to see. It's something that we've been working hard for. And, you know, it's not the stardom that we care about, honestly. It's just about putting soccer on the map, getting different faces out there, and just getting, you know, good, good recognition of the players that deserve it. Well, by the way, where were you when you get recognized? Where was the last time? Ooh, the last time I got recognized was back home in Ontario uh, and it was uh, in a Starbucks actually. Is that, see, I mean, and again, that that to me is the interesting part. It makes all the sense in the world that if you're near a soccer field that someone would say, oh, there's Melissa because the context, but for if you've, if you've reached the point where you can be far away from a soccer field and people still recognize you, that, that, that actually says a lot. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, even like when I was coming home to Canada, the customs agent was like, you play soccer? And I was like, yep. <laughs> he was like, come on through. So... <laughs> 
Well, and it also, you know, you have these, um, you're coming home around, as I say, around Christmas time, and I want to let you explain this a little bit about the um, the the classes and the, the camps that you run, but you've got some, some other members of the Canadian National Women's Team that are with you. But again, I got to think, and, and tell me that I'm wrong, but before London, if you had run one of these camps, maybe the real diehard soccer people would have brought their girls out and the girls would have been looking at you like, who's this person? But I have to believe that now when you run these camps that you have these little girls, and I know they're up to 17, but the younger ones looking at you with giant eyes going, holy jumping, that's Melissa Tancredi. That's that's Keisha Buchanan. That's whoever else it is. It's got to be way different. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's crazy now to see girls or anyone get starstruck because you're not used to that. And, you know, I would have been the same way in their shoes, you know, looking at any one of my role models. But, you know, it, it's... I'm okay with it, but I, I honestly just want to push it on to, you know, players like Kadisha Buchanan, players like Deanne Rose, who will be joining us in the camp as well. It's just nice to see, you know, players more their age um, and just realizing that you can do it at any age. And, you know, this is somebody that's 17 years old and played in two World Cups and an Olympic in, in one year, so, in <laughs> uh, Deanne Rose. So I think that's kind of the more the more special part of this camp is that just, you know, getting to know somebody that's your age, that's so successful, and it kind of makes it real for these girls. If someone was interested uh, in this camp, and again, I think it's December 26 and 27 at Players Paradise in Stony Creek, where would they find details about this? Well, on the Players Paradise uh, website, um, for sure. You can check my Twitter account, my Instagram account, um, on my Facebook. Uh, I believe it's playersparadisesoccer.com. Um, but it's, it's everywhere. It's uh, hopefully going to be in the spectator very, very soon. Um, but it's the T- registry tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. Oh, yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Tomorrow it is. Um, but yeah, you can check all my social media uh, for any sort of registration details. Sounds like a great Christmas present, quite honestly, if you've got a daughter or a granddaughter or someone who uh, who's into soccer. I mean, and, and they want to be being able to play and kick the ball around with their heroes a bit. It sounds like a great idea. Just before I let you go, because we got to go here. Um, February 4th is this game, and it's kind of a celebration of the bronze medal game. You guys are playing Mexico in BC. Depending what happens after that game, are you looking, you joked around about being head coach, and I know you're not really going to do that, or you don't, you're saying so now anyway, but do you want to stay involved in soccer in, in, in a competitive way in some kind as a coach or trainer or team chiropractor or something? Is that what you would want to do? Absolutely. I think so. I think, you know, and it doesn't even limit it to soccer. I think it's just sport in general. I want to be around it. Um, I want to challenge myself getting to know new sports, um, whether it be a chiropractor or, you know, a coach. I just, I, I love it. I, I love seeing people succeed and excel and, and being somebody who helps them make a difference. And yeah, for sure. That's in my future plan. Well, the selfish side of us says that we hope on February 4, when you play that game that you announce, you're going to stick around for four more years and play in uh, Tokyo in the next Olympics. Um, <laughs> we, we will see. But, uh, yeah. but, but it is, uh, listen, I appreciate you doing this as always. And, uh, for people again, who are looking for something to maybe give their kids or the soccer player and their family for Christmas, uh, playersparadisesoccer.com. And you can find the information for Melissa's soccer camps. Uh, Melissa, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you so much. That is, uh, that is Melissa Tancredi from Vancouver. She just moved there. She's moved into her house three days ago. Just got back, got a little bit settled. But it is, a, it is a cool gift, and it is remarkable. It really is remarkable. I'll tell you what, before the World Cup in the summer of 2015, 
There, remember that game that they played at Tim Hortons Field? It was a sold-out pre-tournament game against England. And before the game, I can't even remember which sports broadcaster in this country was showing the games, TSN or Sportsnet or whomever. They brought her... They brought Melissa to Cathedral, where she had gone to school, put her in her, got her to get into her Team Canada uniform, and with some of the girls from the Cathedral High School soccer team, took her out on the backfield there at Cathedral to take some shots that they were going to use for a halftime feature about her since she was playing at home, and it was the game she was getting her 100th cap as her 100th appearance in the national team. And I'll tell you what, even in high school, now these girls are not tiny, but even in high school... These girls were looking at her with absolute awe. And you think, you know what? That would have never happened before the Olympics. It's amazing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There have been a number of people from this city as we move along now. There have been a number of people from this city who over the years have done some remarkable athletic feats. Things that I as Joe Average, if that... Could never fathom doing. Couldn't even begin to consider. I use the example of Jeff Joslin or Josh Hill or Jessica Riccosi who have fought in the UFC. I find it fascinating, but there is no chance in the world that I could ever be a UFC fighter. It's not within my constitution. It's not the kind of... I I just couldn't do it. There's a guy we've had on this show before named Rob Krar, who is an ultra-marathoner who set a world record in the rim-to-rim-to-rim race at the Grand Canyon. He ran across the Grand Canyon from one end to the other and then back and set a record. It was just an astounding athletic achievement. Well, my next guest jumps up into that mix of people that you, you see what they've done and you just can't fathom it. I can't. Maybe you can, but I just can't fathom how this is possible. On the weekend, while competing in the Arizona Ironman competition, the Ironman Triathlon, the arguably most grueling, I don't even think arguably, the most grueling athletic event in the world, swam four kilometers, cycled 180 kilometers, and then ran a marathon in seven hours, 44 minutes, and 29 seconds. And by doing this, didn't just break, obliterated the world record in this by 89 seconds. By a minute and a half, he broke the world record. His name is Lionel Sanders. He is a McMaster grad. He joins us now. Lionel, congratulations. Thanks for having me on. Oh, listen, we are, uh, as I said in the intro, I, and I think most people listening can't really grasp or can't really fathom how you do this kind of stuff. Do you know how you do it? I mean, I know it's a weird question to ask because it's you and you just do it, but have you ever sat there and thought, I'm a little different from a lot of people? Well, what's interesting is uh, that's precisely the reason I got into the sport. I was, I was sort of in a dark place. I was abusing drugs and alcohol, and I needed a change in my life. And uh, I heard about the Ironman triathlon. I Googled it, and I said, wow, that is an amazing feat. I don't think I can do that. That's, that's just it's, it's otherworldly. And, and so then I said, well, hey, if I can do it, if I can somehow train for it and do it, then I won't be – there's no way I can abuse drugs and alcohol and do all this stuff anymore. So, so then I signed up for one of these races, and – uh, and, and, you know, even in the race, uh, at mile 20 of the run, I still was unsure if I was going to be able to finish the race. And, and yeah, even, even now that I do it, you know, I do, I train for it all the time. You can't think about it too much because it really is like, it's, it's just so far, it's so, so long, so grueling. 
uh, you, you can't think about it too much, you'll go crazy. But some way, somehow, and this is a real testament to the, to the sort of human spirit, is you, know, you, you find a way to get it done and you, and you do it to the best of your ability with what you have on that day. I want to get to your background because it is a truly remarkable story. But just before I get there, you talk about how far it is. When you dive into the water to begin a race and you've got, as I say, four kilometers to swim, 180 kilometers to bike, and then a marathon, can you let yourself think ahead? Or is it, even as a guy who does this a lot now, is it daunting to think of how much you're going to have to go through? No, you can't, you can't let your mind wander. You've got to stay present in the, in the current moment as, to the absolute best of your ability because... Uh, yeah, those those that sort of negative self talk will definitely start to creep up on you, and, and uh, it, it really is. It's it's so far that uh, I really don't start to think about the actual distance itself that I'm covering until probably you know 20 miles into the marathon, so only you know less than an hour left to go. Uh, and and I think that's also one of the beauties of the sport is it really is a great way to hone and practice and get better at you know staying present, staying mindful in the present moment. It does strike me, Lionel, that physically you obviously have to be in tremendous shape to be able to do this. Otherwise, you know, if I if I were to set out right now to start to do an Ironman, I, I have no doubt that I would have a heart attack after a little while and die. I mean, I'm not being funny. That's You have to be in great physical condition to do this. But this, to me, strikes me as one of those sports that it is so much more than a lot of other sports about the mental, about forcing yourself to keep putting one foot in front of the other. It definitely is. Like, that... I mean, I always say that too. Is uh, we're all in great shape. Like who who wins, who loses, all that sort of stuff is determined all in your mind. And so uh, you definitely, and and this is one of the things I would say. Most of the training that we do is for, is mind training. Like you just, you know, you learn to to get through the hardship. You learn to suffer more. Uh, all of those sorts of things is what you're doing as you're training. And so uh, on on race day, it's really you know who who is mentally more prepared more so than who's physically more prepared. I su- you used the word suffer, and I'm going to ask you about that, but I don't even know if it's a fair question because I think we all have different v- levels of what we would describe as suffering. You do this professionally, and so what you would describe as suffering is probably different from what I would describe as suffering. But that said, describe that for me. What When you're in this race and when you've been racing now for a few hours, what is that like? What what does your body feel like when it gets to the point when you would describe it as suffering? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first the first probably five hours or so of the event, it's fun. Like it's it's great fun. I, you know, I love exercising. I love I love being active. I love all. I love being outside. All those things. So it's it's a lot of fun. But then you know, distance starts to become the 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 issue, and it's very difficult. It's probably you know beyond sort of what we've evolved to do to, to do this sort of thing for this <laughs> yeah. long at this kind of intensity. And so then it really does become sort of this all encompassing, like it, you, you become your pain almost, you become the, the, the sensation in your legs and, and all the thoughts and all those things that you're having that negative self-talk, like, Oh, it's too far. I can't do it. I got to slow down all these sorts of things. And, and that's probably the best way to describe it is it's just this all encompassing thing. It's kind of like on you. But behind it all, and this is, this is what you get better at with training and that sort of thing, is this almost this third perspective that comes in, and you're like, but it's, all, it's just self-inflicted. Like, it's all, it's all just, we're just doing this for fun. We're just doing this to see, uh, you know, what the limits are. How, how far can I push myself? And, and then that, if that, as that awareness starts to grow, 
that I think is what really allows you to push yourself further and further and, and, and really find out that most of what we call limits and that sort of thing are, are things that you've sort of imposed on yourself. When does that start? You, I mean, is it really only after five hours or, or does the pain kick? And the pain has to kick in a lot before then. I mean, for sure. Like if, if you're not in very good shape, if you're not, you know, if you're not sort of prepared properly for the distance, then yeah, hey, it might start in the swim. Who knows? But if you're if you're if you're definitely you know physically prepared for it, um, usually it comes a little bit later because a lot of the race is is pacing yourself properly, and in if you pace yourself properly, then you should really not start to feel that pain until probably uh, five, as I said, five or six hours. But I've had races where halfway through the bike I'm already starting to get like blurry vision and that sort of thing because I was just so ignorant of hydration and nutrition and that sort of thing, and it was so hot out. Um, and, and those are just things with experience, you know, you get better and better at. And, and really what it all comes down to is you just get better at pushing yourself. So, so it never really gets any easier because you just get better at going further and further. So let's talk about the pacing for a second, because you obviously set a world record, not just a, a match record or a course record, a world record, fastest Ironman ever completed. Uh, so your pacing by definition had to be faster than usual. So uh, how was the swim? First of all. I actually had a career best swim, uh, and, it, and it was kind of interesting because uh, I'm used to sort of swimming. You know, usually the race, what happens is the start goes, and then a whole bunch of packs of maybe five or ten guys form. And usually there's a front pack and then a second pack, and I'm usually, uh, you know, kind of on the feet of the second pack, and then they drop me, and then I sort of use them to sight my way through the course as they're slowly pulling away from me. But I was having the best swim of my life, so I actually was in, in front of this pack who I'm usually behind, and at one point in the swim, I thought I was going the wrong way. I actually had to do the backstroke for, for a few strokes. And, and I look behind, I'm like, oh, wow, there's guys behind me. And it just was an experience I had never had. And, uh, and so, you know, when I got out of the water, I looked over and I saw, I noticed, because I see a lot of these guys, uh, you know, at the races, and I recognized a guy who's usually three or four minutes ahead of me. So I knew I had had the best swim of my life. And what's funny is he actually said to me, he's like, wow, you had a good swim. And uh, so that really set the tone for the day. So you get out of the water, you're in great shape. Well, I mean, you're, time-wise, you're in great shape out of the water. How does the bike go? Well, that's the thing. You see, I still, I still, I was in that second pack. So I still, I'm, I'm, if I have a weakness, it's, the, it's in the water. And so I was probably about 17th place or so out of the water and about, I want to say, six minutes or so down on the, on the very front guy, which uh, maybe it doesn't seem like a lot, but it is a lot of time. So... Um, you know, out onto the bike, that's kind of my bread and butter. And so, but once again, it's a 180 kilometer bike ride. So I, I kept telling myself over and over, an Ironman's a long way. And, you know, if you're pacing yourself properly, it should feel quite easy in the beginning. And it felt actually so easy in the beginning. And it was just one of those days where, you know, the body was functioning very, very well. But it felt so easy that I started to think that my power meter was malfunctioning and that it was giving me, you know, incorrect readings. But I still, I made sure to say, you know, just stick to the numbers that you had intended on holding. And then probably by about three hours, then it started. Then I was like, oh, yeah, the power meter's functioning properly. This is really starting to hurt. And uh, by that time, I think I had, I had moved into second place, and, um, and, I, and I ended up holding that to the end of the bike. Uh, so I came off the bike in second place, about two minutes down to the lead. And just so people have a concept of that distance, that is getting on your bike in downtown Hamilton, riding your bike to downtown Toronto, riding your bike back to downtown Hamilton, 
and then riding your bike back to downtown Toronto. Just so you people understand just how stinking far that is that you're riding your bike. And then you got to get off the bike and run a marathon, which went how? That's the part that's very difficult to fathom in the moment. You can't think about it too much. Because if you, if you know how far a marathon is, and then, you know, your legs feel very, very heavy after doing that bike ride. So, uh, you know, this is where the mind starts to really come in. And, um, you know, uh, I had a good bike ride, and uh, the guy in front of me, actually, he was a pro cyclist uh, prior to getting into triathlon. So that was definitely his bread and butter as well. So, um, you know, I ended up catching him at a boat, I want to say, mile, one, maybe one and a half, two miles. Uh, and so now I'm in the lead, and then, um, you know, I definitely had to, 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 to once again really force myself because I felt pretty good once again. And so uh, I forced myself to sort of pace out well, and um, I think I was averaging, I want to say, 345 per kilometer through the first half marathon, and it felt good. But I knew at some point the, endur- the, the distance was going to catch up with me, and uh, so I was trying to build up kind of some fat because I was aware of the, of the record time of 7 hours, 45 minutes, and I think about 58 seconds or so. Um, and so, so I did, I built up some fat and, uh, and then I did hit the wall probably at about 18 miles or so. And I hit it really hard and I actually threw in the towel. Like I was like, all right, you know, 748 is good. There's no way you're, you're breaking 745, not happening. And so I, I actually stopped looking at the watch at that point and I just kept running. And, um, and, but then interestingly, my fiance had run to mile 23 of the run and it kind of took me aback because usually she's just waiting at the finish line. And she was like, you're still on pace. You can make it if you want it. And I don't know what it was, but I went through, like, what final aid station, and I, I had, like, cold, ice-cold water hit the back of my throat, and I just woke up all of a sudden. And I was like, you are going to regret this so much if you don't give it everything you've got for the final three miles. And so that's what I did, and I was actually – and once again, it's just a testament to how much the mind plays into this, but I was able to get back down to six-minute miles, probably 30 or 40 seconds per mile faster than I had been running you know, for the last five miles, and I was able to get in under that, that time in uh, 7.44 and some change. It's, it, it is absolutely remarkable. What happens when you cross the finish line? Because if your mind is driving you through this – I mean, your body is doing it, but your mind is forcing you – when you cross the finish line, does that drive within your brain shut down? And if it does, what happens to your body? Does it follow? I mean, it was. It took me a good fifteen minutes to like they kind of take you over to like a media area and and you do some interviews and stuff. And it took me a good fifteen minutes to really even be able to like form coherent sentences. Like uh, I was, def- it's definitely by far the furthest I've ever pushed myself, but. You know, I, I love this sport, and so, you know, this is, this is a pretty momentous time in my career. I definitely pretty quickly was, was flying high, and I was able to pull things back together. But, but yeah, like my legs were, were pretty, pretty fried, and, and definitely, you know, my, my, bot, my mind was, was, would, had, had taken a beating. We have a few minutes left here, and I'm hoping you will take a couple minutes, and you mentioned off the top about why you got into triathlon or at least the path that got you into triathlon. And it is truly an inspirational and a remarkable story. Take a couple of minutes if you're, if you're willing to and talk about where you were, explain where you were before this and basically in your life and what you were doing. Yeah, I, I had, um, I, I want to say it was about 2007. Uh, I dropped out of school. You know, I, w- I was partying a lot and, and I was doing poorly in school and um, and I just, you know, I basically went down that path for another two years, but I was not in school anymore. I was just kind of hibernating in a basement and, 
I just I started to abuse drugs and alcohol progressively more and more, and I got to a point where I was having uh, auditory and visual hallucinations even when I wasn't high, and uh, and it just you know severe social phobia and and uh, you know paranoia and and depression and uh, just uh, I, and deep 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 shame too for some reason just you know I think probably knew in the back of my mind I was capable of more but I I just you know I wasn't fulfilling any of that and. So anyways, that went on for several more years, and then I finally had a, had a sort of awakening experience that, that, uh, that said, you know what, man, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, enough is enough. It's time to, time to turn this around. And, and it was right around that time that I, well, a few days later, that I got this idea to do the Ironman triathlon. And, uh, and so, like I said earlier, I Googled it. I found out it was this super hard thing to do, and I signed up for the race. And, you know, the rest is history, really. I, I, I I, I, I won't say that it was a, a, a you know a quick pathway. I definitely relapsed <laughs> and all that sort of stuff yep. along the way, but uh, but I but I eventually got there and I finished that race and I felt like I could do anything afterwards and and then that's where I sort of said you know what I think I'm going to try and see how far I can go in this sport. But you had actually correct me if I'm wrong, but I've read this a number of places. You had actually been to the point where you were considering suicide. You were you were and closer even than considering. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a time that I, I don't enjoy going back to most definitely, but um, I definitely was at that point, and and I went into a garage one day, and I had said, you know what, enough is enough. I'm I'm sick of this life, and I'm, I'm uh, I don't want to live it anymore. And uh, and and you know, I get a little emotional when I think about it, but fortunately, when I was in there, my mom popped into my head, and and I knew that she would blame herself for that, and. Uh, I didn't want to do that to her, so I said, "You know what? This is just a matter of life and death now." And uh, so I, I got—I I didn't, I didn't commit that act. And uh, I said, "There's got to be another way." And fortunately for me, you know, I saw the light and I was able to turn things around. Well, what is truly—I mean, besides the time, what is just so remarkable about this is that was seven years ago that you've gone from that in seven years from that to being the world record fastest time ever in the Ironman, Lionel. It's a. Um, it's a remarkable story, and for anyone, again, who is still not quite grasping what this is, when you go to work tomorrow morning and do your eight-hour shift, from the moment you arrive at work until the moment you leave, imagine giving full physical effort the entire time. That's how long, no lunch break. I, I don't think you take lunch or smoke breaks when you're on the Ironman Triathlon. Um, I haven't seen anyone do no, that. No, that, that's, you know, think about the distance of the cycling, think about the marathon, think about the time of exertion. I, As I said right off the top, Lionel, it, it is something that baffles me. I don't get it at all, but I, boy, I look at that and I just have incredible admiration for yourself and other people who can do this, but, and to set a world record on top of everything else, well done. That's, that's remarkable. Well, thanks Scott. I appreciate it. That is Lionel Sanders, former Max student, now the world record holder in the Ironman triathlon. Uh, appreciate your time tonight, Lionel. Thanks. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me on. That is, uh, if you're ever, if you're ever looking for something to do that would, cha- well, I don't even know where to go with that. I just, as I say, it, it is a baffling thing to me. It's so beyond anything that I could comprehend. And Lionel, I mean, it sounds like when he describes the story, he was in worse shape than I am with his situation. And he looked at it and said, I can do this. And in seven years, he went from that to setting a world record. So I suppose that anyone, well, theoretically, anyone could do it. 
I don't believe that's the case. I think you, I still believe that there has to be a, you have to be a person that has a certain level of inner mental strength because it is so much a mental game to force yourself to keep running when you're in that amount of pain. Not today, but another time he was talking, he described it as um, unfathomable suffering. And if you think about, as I said during the interview, talking with him, his definition of suffering and yours and my definition of suffering, I am quite positive they would be two different things. He has trained his body to be used to that kind of thing. We haven't. So for him to talk about it as unfathomable suffering is something beyond what I can understand, and yet he persisted and pushed and set a world record. Unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. Really, really impressive. You can read all about him online, and there will be something coming out in The Spectator in the next uh, day or so, I'm quite sure. In fact, I know. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There is a major university event in Hamilton this weekend. That would be the Vanier Cup Saturday at Tim Hortons Field. It is Laval, which we know very well around here from the two Vanier Cups, the first two that Ham- that McMaster played in. They beat them in 2011 and then lost in 2012. Versus Calgary, which we also know pretty well around here. A, because McMaster beat Calgary in that 2012 year on the way to the second go at the Vanier Cup. They beat them in the Mitchell Bowl. They crushed them. But also because there's been a ton of Hamilton guys that have gone there. Mercer Timmis, who's now with the Ticats, played for the Dinos. Brett Blasco, a bunch of other guys. So this is the big event that's going on this weekend, the big football event. Yet it has been a challenge, for sure, to get the needle moving on this one. Joining me to talk about this, Graham Brown is the CEO of U Sports, formerly CIS. He's now the boss in charge of Canadian University Sports, Graham joins me. Graham, how are you this evening? Good, Scott. You, thanks for having me on. A thrilled to have you. Let me tell you, I think you've missed the boat right off the bat, though. i got to tell you this. Because of the history with Laval in this city with McMaster and because every great story needs a villain, I think you should have, every time Glenn Constantin, the coach of Laval's name, was mentioned, you should have had the Darth Vader music playing just to build up that villainy thing to get the storyline going. Well, that's great for national <laughs> unity, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that probably wouldn't have played all that well in Quebec. I'm guessing you're probably correct. Um, so, listen, let's, let me tell you a couple of things right now. Is, is Glenn is uh, he's in town, and if anybody wants to go down to the practices, they can see it. He, he runs a great program, and you know what? Uh, I wish uh, I wish Glenn all the best as I do the Dinos. Let me say this about Glenn, because again, there is this rivalry, or there has been with McMaster over the years, and that kind of does make them the, the villains of this story, I think, in some way. But a number of years ago, when McMaster played at the Vanier Cup in Montreal, and there were some things going on with the organizing, you had nothing to do with it. It was actually Glenn Constantin, the coach of Laval, that, um, that kind of chewed out the organizers and stood up for McMaster. So I just wanted to uh, put that out there. He did, he did come to McMaster's side when, when that happened, so he's, he's not a bad guy. Is this is this a good thing though to have Laval back in this game because they've just they've I mean honestly you know this they've been here so much that I wonder if it becomes a bit of in, in some people's eyes a bit of a tired story. Um, listen, I, we're all sports people, I guess, that are listening, and yourself, and I'd probably say is is it a tired story or is someone doing a really really good job in a program really really um, delivering? You know what I, I think that. 
what we have is, and they weren't here last year, so it's not every year. Right. And, um, no, I think they run a great program. I think people should look at what they do and how they do it and, and not applaud them because, you know, everyone's very territorial. But certainly I, I don't think anybody is saying, you know, um, anything negative about what, what they're doing. We all need to, we should all strive for that. Well, Quebec, the, the Quebec football, especially in the university football, has definitely upped the ante around the country. They've changed the way a lot of programs operate and, and what they've had to do to compete. They, they certainly have. Actually, Quebec sport. Um, I, having just recently come to U Sports Canada, formerly CIS, uh, from Rugby Canada, I can tell you that uh, you know sport in Quebec is, is important, and they do a great job. They invest in it. Um, I think Laval is very fortunate, as is, as is uh, the University of Montreal uh, and some of the other programs there, is that they have a very good feeder system. The CJAP program for football is outstanding. Uh, the coaching at that level below is outstanding. They're getting uh, young uh, athletes that are, you know, really performing at a high level. Not that we don't, trust me, not that we don't across Ontario or across the rest of Canada, but they do have a, a very concentrated uh, football program sitting under them. Well, and you know what, uh, Graham, there, there are lots of people, and we use baseball as the example, there are lots of people forever who have hated the New York Yankees because they have the money, they have the resources, they have the power, and more often than not, the Yankees are in the playoffs and they win, and people, you know, they call them the evil empire and all that, but you know what, generally, uh, it's good for baseball when they're there because, you know what, if nothing else, you have someone that has got your attention. If you're passionate about it, even if you're terribly passionate that you want Laval to lose this because you can't stand the fact that Quebec is so good, at least you're passionate. Yeah, uh, yeah I certainly, you know, you could take that approach, but I don't think anybody wants Laval to lose it. I, I do quite the opposite, I think, if, unless they were playing McMaster, of course. Sure. I think, I think what the football community here want is a great football game. I think uh, what I would like at, at U Sports is a great football game. I know TVA Sports and Sportsnet want a great football game, and I think you're going to get one of those. In, in terms of what drives how, how successful they've been, you know, probably leadership and, and all kinds of variables. But, um, you know, we, we had that conversation with, with Carlton Basketball, and you can, you can pick, yep. cherry pick uh, other sports. But, you know, I think right now um, it's good for football that, that they're setting a standard and and making programs strive to catch them. And that, no, and that's exactly that's my point. Actually, is, is when you look at Carlton basketball, when you look at some of the other programs that have been so dominant around this country, I do. Th- I mean, I, maybe we disagree on that one. I think that when you set that kind of bar, people do want to knock them off, and they do maybe become the um, the team that people want to see beaten because they are so darn good. But they're making everybody better. I, you know, just having in one year, I guess I, I have to be careful how I prep. Of course, but in, the, in the in the year that I've I've had this role, I've I've had the opportunity to watch a ton of university sport, and when I watch whether it's the football or the basketball, you know, the the general theme is, is the schools that are really doing a great job, and I can name them in all the sports. I can go UNB and hockey. The schools that are doing a great job, they've invested in great leadership. That's the coach coach-led player focus. They've got uh, a strong um, focus on their athletic department. Uh, but more importantly, what they've done a great job at is recruiting. They've, they've done a solid recruiting effort that has continued to give them high-performing athletes year over year. 
Graham, it's a great segue to to one of the things that I find, and I think a lot of people find, so frustrating is that Canadian university Canadian university sport has been, in fact, getting a lot better over the years. There has definitely been whether it's Laval with football, Carlton with basketball, McMaster with volleyball, on and on on Trinity Western with volleyball, wherever you want to go, there have been great improvements, and yet it's still in a lot of places. Canadian university sports remains a really hard sell. And I, I'm sure that's part of the reason you were brought in to help try and push for to, to make it a better sell. But why is that? Why is Canadian university sport, it's such a struggle sometimes to get people to tune in, to pay attention, to buy tickets, to just invest the time? Um, yeah, great question. I think that first off, there's multiple layers to the question. And, and I think there are tons of examples where, in fact, university sport is has not had that problem. I mean, Laval, obviously, you can say for football, but you know the the challenge that university sport faces is is remaining relevant consistently, and a lot of that has to, had to do, in my opinion, with the national body and CIS previously and New Sports now, and not not that there weren't great people there, there were very much great people there, but the focus has been on rules, regulations, eligibility, discipline. Um, just a focus on the, the pure administrative part of the role. And I think what, what has to happen and is happening, and, and you know, as long as they see fit to keep me here, I suppose, at youth sports, is that the focus is going to turn on the athlete, the storytelling, the accomplishments. And we've, we've talked, I think, or marketed for a long time in university sport. It's been 25 years since I played university sport. But, you know, I, I have always followed it. And coming from rugby, you know, it was responsible for the success of our rugby programs in Canada. But when I look at it, we need to change our focus and focus on high schools. We need to change the focus and message so that every single high school student who comes in knows who we are, knows how quality the athletic program is. And we, we tend to, to bleed our conversations into alumni and, and other uh, areas that I think are truly going to, you know, in some cases, very difficult to market to. But it's not difficult to market to high school students. Is that because for a long time it's there's been the perception in in some corners that if you're a good athlete, the first thing you do is leave Canada to go to the NCAA? Well, I, I would challenge you this. So part of my role before I took this was uh, to decide whether I would take this role. And I, I spent a lot of time doing my own market research, certainly very cheap. But uh, what I did was I asked my friends, and I had lots of friends in sport, you know, what they thought. And, and, I, and many of them in influential positions. So... It went kind of like this. I don't think a young high school athlete um, is necessarily thinking in grade 9, 10, and 11 of, of where they're going to go. People are telling them that they might go somewhere. So a young athlete is being told you might get an NCAA scholarship. The challenge I have is that if you were to, to walk into any high school, any sport program, and ask them to define and tell them or you what they know about NCAA, they would probably talk for a minute. If right. you ask them to talk about CIS, they would probably ask you what that stood for. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree 100%. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. conversation to start off with. So until we're in the conversation, we can't, in fact, answer the question you had. And, and you know, I, I've said publicly, and I, I'll say it again here, is that um, any athlete in Canadian high school who has the opportunity, in my opinion, to go play football at Michigan, Ohio State, um, Stanford, Miami, I can start naming a whole bunch of them. You know, you'd really have to look at yourself as a coach or a university coach and, and say to yourself, if they were really good enough to go there, 
why not? Right? There's all kinds of reasons why they should, and we we're not here trying to tell them not to. What we're trying to do, though, is to ensure that every university or high school football player, when they look at Canadian University, they look at it as a viable opportunity with great programs to get a great education that they know about our, and they don't have to wait till a coach recruits that they already know. When the coach from from Carlton Ravens calls a young athlete at Cathedral High School in Hamilton, that they say, you know, thanks, coach. They they're not saying who are you and, and what is this that you're calling about. Well, you guys have you guys have an advantage that I think has been long built into the Canadian University program, um, and, and you can disagree with me on this one, but I really believe this: that oftentimes when you watch American university sports, it appears as though the sports are designed for the fans and the alumni and the donors, and the athletes are just the the pawns or whatever you want to call it. In that, here it seems as though Canadian university sports is designed for the athletes, and if there are fans or who whichever fans come in, they are there as the observers as opposed to as the driving force behind it. And I think that's a positive thing in a lot of ways. Um, maybe I've got to challenge you with how many how many NCAA institutions are there? A lot. I don't know the exact number. Into the hundreds, into a hundred and something anyway. Division one schools. Okay, just NCAA. How many are, are there? Don't know. Don't know offhand. 1,600. Wow. I have not met anybody in my travels, and obviously I've had uh, lots of these conversations who can name more than 60 NCAA programs. They start naming the obvious, of course, and, and they, they eventually will run out. And, and, you know, I think the problem we have here in Canada, and, and maybe it's, uh, it's not a problem, I, I don't like using the word problem, challenge is that we assume that Every NCAA school is, in fact, those top 60 schools. Yes, we and do. You're right. True. You're right. There, there are schools that play uh, NCAA Division One football that, that are as challenged getting fans and support and community support and school support. Um, and, and I look at our programs and say, you know what, for the most part, across the whole country, uh, our students are attending our games, basketball, volleyball. I mean, it's hard, right? They're student athletes and whatnot. We have programs that are working. They're trying to market and promote. And, but don't compare it to that because you're comparing it to the very top of 1,600 schools in the U.S. Fair enough. But, but as I say, I go back to my point. I think that the, it is a positive thing that over the years, the priority, it seems, in Canadian university sports has been on the student-athletes as opposed to being on just finding donors or alumni who are willing to give vast sums of money. I think that's a good thing, that it's, it's about the athletes. That's an excellent thing, and, and we do it actually very well. You know, and the thing I think we're very proud to say student-athlete, student-first. And, you know, when I, uh, once again, going back to my year here, and I've been able to see, you know, the programs across the country, there's not a lack of, uh, of uh, enthusiasm or support. As a matter of fact, the support is pretty amazing. Uh, when you think of campuses now, uh, just locally here, let's just take Mac, who, who I think uh, have just announced a, an ambition to, to do some uh, facility upgrades and building, take Guelph. You know, take U of T, Scarborough, U of T, York. You know, our facilities are awesome. Our schools are committed. Our student-athletes are awesome. The problem is that we don't tell the story. So if we don't tell the story, you know, someone asked me, why, why would you put a name on a jersey? Because we're going through this right now with the Vanier Cup. You have to put your names on it. So you'll see Laval will be the only game they've played would be the, uh, the UTech Bowl and the Vanier with their names on it. And until we've done a better job telling the story, I want people to know who they are. And I know you'll hear the story, well, we don't want names because we want, you know, it's a team. I want names because I want to do a better job telling stories. I want to tell people who's 
the Heck Creighton Award nominees from all four conferences, and they should know that instead of me having to tell them that. You're, you're, no, you know what? You're right. You're right, and, and it's a. Uh, there is endless. There are endless possibilities with this. It's. Um, we will see. Now, you, you do have, I only have a minute left here, uh, but very quickly, the, the Vanier Cup is Saturday. Um, ticket sales have been maybe not where it was hoped for, but there's an awful lot of stuff still going on this weekend, and people can still get tickets. Explain how they can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this is a football town. I, I was responsible, one of a, a group of people responsible to bring the game here. I believe in this town in, in terms of football. And, you know, Scott Mitchell and the work he's done with the Tie Cats and the facility you have, your town, Here's my challenge to your, to your community here. This is the best Canadian university football teams in Canada. This is awesome football. Just come out and support it. Just, you know, everything is uh, check in the box from my perspective. And uh, when they come out, you know, weather hopefully will play a part in, in the weekend. But if you go online, you can get a ticket. Uh, tickets are, you can buy a ticket for your family for less than $20 each, uh, which in my opinion is fantastic value. And you're going to be on national TV watching a fantastic game. Graham Brown, CEO of U-Sports, formerly CIS. Uh, really appreciate the time and the conversation tonight. Thanks, Graham. Scott, thank you. Uh, that game is 1 o'clock on Saturday down at Tim Horton Field, ticketmaster.ca if you want to get a ticket. It's also on TV on Sportsnet. Yes, Luke. Uh, at, at the beginning of that conversation, he, you guys were talking about Laval and how good they are and are people getting tired. And he, like every other CIS person that you talked to, apologized and was an apologist for them and said, well, just get better for the other teams. The reason why Montreal and Laval are good is because every good football player in the province of Quebec goes to those schools and no other school. That's it. The, tal- the, the talent disparity between those schools and the other schools in their conference is so ridiculous. I was looking this up while you were talking. They play twice against each other, and they both had one bad game against another team. Montreal allowed 21 points, 22 points to Laval, 20 points to Sherbrooke. They played five other games. You know how many points they allowed in those five games? Nine. Nine points in five games. How bad is the rest of the conference that that is the kind of defense that Montreal can put up? Laval, pretty much the same thing. 17 points in their other five games. It's it, it, Listen, it's a challenge. They have advantages for sure. You could argue, though, in Ontario that Western and Mac and to some degree Guelph, not to the no, same because, degree. Because good players go to Carleton. Good players go yep. to Ottawa. Yep. They go to Queens. Like, good players, yes, you're right. There are bad schools in Ontario, like U of T, like York. But there are five or six schools that a good player might go to for geographical reasons or whatever. We are way behind. I, gotta, I would love to continue the conversation, but the clock is my enemy right now. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.